Welcome to the Heartbreak to Happiness Show with Sara Davison. If you're struggling with a breakup and you feel shocked, angry, betrayed, devastated, or sad and alone, then this podcast is for you. Best-selling author and award-winning host, Sara Davison, shares how you too can get on with your life to heal, grow, and move from heartbreak to happiness. Here's your host, Sara Davison. Welcome back to the show. And today, my guest is Alison Bourne. Now, Alison is the CEO of The Dash Charity, which stands for Domestic Abuse Stops Here. Now, I am lucky enough to be the patron of The Dash Charity. So obviously, I'm extremely passionate about the work that it does. And I'm also a survivor of abuse myself. Now, Alison, my guest today, runs the Dash Charity. She manages a team of extremely inspiring people who help people who are suffering and going through the trauma of domestic abuse. Alison is now the CEO, but was previously a trustee for 12 years, so she knows the charity inside out. Dash provides refuge accommodation for women and children from all over the UK, as well as critical community outreach services to help keep victims of domestic abuse safe in their own homes. So I am super excited to welcome Alison Bourne to the show. Welcome, Alison. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Obviously, have a special place in my heart for the Dash charity. So please share with my listeners, what does Dash do? And tell us all about the work that you do there. Okay. So DASH stands for Domestic Abuse Stops Here, which your listeners will all know is pretty aspirational at the moment. We're not there yet, but we're working towards that. Um, It's a small specialist local charity that has been going, can you believe, for 45 years, since our 45th birthday this year. And we help uh, women, men and children, anyone who's experiencing any sort of domestic abuse Um, in our local communities, but also our refuge services. We take women from all over the UK into our refuges. So our two main services are the refuges, but I'd say almost bigger stuff is our community work. So trying to keep people safe in their own homes. Why should they have to leave? Why should they have to flee the other side of the country because they're fighting with their lives? So we work really hard with our community clients, safeguarding them, keeping getting safety planning put in place, making sure their houses are as safe as possible. Yeah, I'm really proud of that work. That's definitely the way forward. Plus, of course, education. We do a lot of education, raising awareness of what is domestic abuse, how to spot it and what we need to do about it. I mean, you guys do such incredible work. And I know personally your team there are absolutely dedicated to the job and go above and beyond every single day to help vulnerable people. Can you explain to my listeners what domestic abuse is? Yes. So up to 20, well, typically, sorry, people think domestic abuse is domestic violence. But if you think about domestic abuse as being the umbrella term and underneath it are different forms of abuse. Back in 2015, the government made coercive control part of the definition of domestic abuse and what that means is so of course it's the physical side people suffer from violence from their perpetrators but then there's also sexual abuse psychological abuse 
emotional abuse, and increasingly, interestingly, during the pandemic, economic abuse, financial abuse, where people are being kept from being able to access funds and being able to buy food for them, their children. We've seen a lot of a lot of that in, during the pandemic. So it's a broad umbrella term, any sort of abuse. Yeah, and coercive control. I mean, I know that they've made this now, you know, it's illegal now to coercively control someone. Can you explain a little bit about what that means? Because it is quite an odd term, isn't it? It, it is. It is. And the, the phrase we always come back to is power and control. It's all about exerting power in an attempt to control another human being in however way they choose to do that. Spot, it's more difficult to prosecute, but at least it's in law now, so we can continue to work on that. Bizarre, I mean, I was listening to a, a survivor not that long ago who said, actually, it was a relief when he hit me because I knew that was wrong. I knew that was wrong. But the other stuff, he, he just kept gaslighting me and saying, this is fine, this is OK. So coercive control is so important. It's in law. Unfortunately, it's, it's tougher to spot and tougher to do something about. Very hard to prove in the family courts in the UK. I'm not sure around the world if they suffer from the same challenges we do here. But, you know, it is very challenging. Gaslighting, you mentioned there. Can you explain a little bit to my listeners what gaslighting is? Because this I've heard is on the rise. I definitely see more of it in my coaching clinic since the pandemic. I think the whole sort of domestic abuse, the stats have gone up, unfortunately, being locked indoors. Um, And gaslighting is a term we're seeing more even on the news now. So please do share what that means. So, yeah, gaslighting is when the perpetrator or the alleged perpetrator um, blames the other person, says, oh, you're imagining it, it's nothing, this is okay, this is normal. And if you're told that enough, that drip, 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 people can easily start to believe it and think, oh, it's just me, this is this is perfectly normal, it's perfectly okay. But, you know, it's not one of our biggest challenges sometimes is persuading people who we're, they, they get referred into us that they are victims of domestic abuse. I mean, perhaps they've seen that happen to their, you know, in their childhoods. That's how it works. That's what they do. That's what happens in a relationship. And that's partly why I am so passionate about, you know, it starts, everything goes back to education. You know, we're picking up the pieces a lot of the time. And I don't want to be doing that. I want to make domestic abuse stop here. So, you know, going into schools before lockdown, we connected with over 3,000 kids in our local schools talking about what's okay and what's not okay. What is a healthy relationship? Because and so many of them have very skewed views of what's okay and what's not okay. So that's really what, you know, let's get around this gaslighting and it's not okay. And you're okay to ask for help. That's one of the things. Yeah, I mean, asking for help is key. I think gaslighting is almost where you don't know it's happening. You're just so confused because it's lies, it's changing the truth. And what I've seen from both personal experience and from coaching thousands of people around the world going through toxic relationships, coming out of toxic relationships, is that the challenge is that you kind of stop trusting your own instinct, your own gut, because you you don't know what is going on. It's so confusing, overwhelming. You know, the perpetrator could tell you black is white and you believe them because at that point you just have 
really lost touch with you know reality in a lot of ways and it's like you said chip 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 over a period of time if they did it on day one we'd all say sling your hook get out of here but because it's slow it sort of corrodes away in the background and then the confusion and and the lack of certainty and then you find all sorts of other issues like you might be isolated from your friends you might be financially dependent on them like you said you know, the control often is financial. Yeah. I'm working with uh, a few clients right now, one in particular who has always had to bring receipts home and get approval for those receipts, even down to a coffee, the money she spent each day, yeah. even though she's earning and her money goes into that account to buy a coffee for pound fifty, she has to justify why she didn't take the coffee in in a flask why did she spend the money every single day and because that's happened for such a long period of time it's normalized now Mm. I know you guys see that a lot normalizing is is one of the 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 effects of this yes completely and minimizing as well so going back to not having to persuade people but and raise their awareness that this might be abuse people minimize they say oh well you know poor poor guys he's stressed and got a lot on at work and it's not really that bad and yet that's that's the other side of it too and I think you know most of the partners of people that are abusive tend to be highly empathetic so they kind of are fixers if you like well don't worry I understand I can do it I'll suck it up because I don't want to upset you because I know you're having a tough time yeah but you know it's almost like enabling in a way that monster to grow if you like even though it's not your fault you know you're trying to do the best to to be a caring partner but actually it can enable them to erode your boundaries completely over time and and it's so hard for people you've just reminded me I was talking to um no I was watching a program about um domestic homicide a couple of weeks ago and um this woman was murdered by her partner and the family, she had two sisters and two brothers, and they were just distraught because they had said, look, if you don't get out of this, don't come running to us because this is not right, so don't come running to us. And so they'd cut her off, not completely, but emotionally. And, of course, they were distraught. They didn't mean that. They thought they were helping, but actually it just isolated her all the more, and so she didn't go to them for help, and she ended up being murdered. Shocking stats around homicides in the UK, aren't there, Alison? Do you have those to hand to share? Yeah, I mean, pandemic has made such a big difference negatively. Um, before that, we would quote, typically you'd quote from people like Women's Aid and Safe Lives, every three days a woman is murdered. Every three days. And one in five children experience domestic abuse sometime in their lives and yes it's still early days in the pandemic but we know now we found out recently that in the first three weeks of the first lockdown so a year ago 16 women and two children under the age of five were murdered in the first three weeks of lockdown so those numbers are going to go up and we expect as as restrictions lift those numbers will go up because people are more able to contact people like us. We call it the Christmas syndrome. Sometimes we're really busy before Christmas, and then it gets really quiet at Christmas because people are trying to play happy families, they're treading on eggshells, and then as soon as things open up again, January is always our busiest month with people thinking, oh, at last I can I can ask for help. And it's, it's felt like that after each lockdown has lifted, the numbers have gone up. 
amazing. I mean, it's shocking how how this pandemic has affected what's going on. I know in my coaching clinic, I've seen a lot more abuse uh, coming through in client cases. Yeah. But have you had an increase in calls to your helplines at Dash? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and referrals from self-referrals are really high, which ironically makes me very pleased because it, it means that people are aware that we exist and that that service is available. But referrals from police are up um, when the schools were in, referrals from schools were in, up health. So, yes, we definitely have an increase in um, calls. Now, you said earlier about schools now getting involved and offering some sort of training, which I think is essential because spotting the signs of abuse it can be really hard because if you've never experienced it before, or as you said earlier, if you grew up in an abusive environment, maybe your parents were, they had a toxic environment, a relationship themselves, then it might be just normal for you. You might not appreciate how bad it really is. So how do you spot the signs of abuse? I mean, the easiest one is when it's physical abuse. There's people wearing long sleeves in the middle of summer. The, the typical black eyes. I mean, we have a worker who works in the local big hospital, so she obviously gets the people who come in overnight from A and E and is able to risk assess them and help them with their safety planning. That's kind of the easy one. The more subtle ones are the psychological signs. So that might be people withdrawing, making excuses for not when we were allowed to go out, not not coming out or not coming onto a Zoom call, feeling like. Someone is, is kind of isolating themselves. We can guarantee it's not them isolating themselves. It's their perpetrator isolating themselves. Um, and just generally looking uncomfortable. So, for example, I was on a Zoom call with a friend who I know is experiencing some domestic abuse. Uh, this was a couple of months ago. And I was talking to her and suddenly realized, oh, my goodness, he's in the room. He's in the room listening to yeah. our entire conversation and so suddenly I had to be very careful what I said. And she kept sort of nervously looking over. You know, those are pretty clear signs that something is seriously wrong. What can you do if you think one of your friends is experiencing that? So obviously, if there's anything like anything urgent, if you are worried about their danger, you call 999. Just, just do it. You know, the police will take that very seriously. If it's more subtle like, like that, just keep in touch, keep reaching out. Don't judge, you know, like that poor victim's family who say, well, don't come running to us. Don't do that. They mean well, but don't do that. Just keep talking and, and listening and reassuring. And when we, we had, when we were in the office at Dash, when we were allowed to be in the office, a number of times I've heard, you know, our fantastic team saying, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And reassuring them and saying, this is not normal. You know it's not normal and this is not your fault. I think that is a really key message. Uh, I did another episode with Michelle Dewsbury, who suffered a lot of abuse. She's in the US. And she said, you know, she just needed someone to say, it's not your fault. And that's what she says now to people, you know, it's not your fault. Because sometimes you, well, obviously you're made to feel like it is entirely your fault. So I think actually hearing that can be a real lifesaver at times. Yeah. And if there are listeners, sorry. No, I, I, I agree. And I was going to say, and I'm not a specialist in this area, I've managed the amazing people who are, 
but just picking up on whether you're a victim of domestic abuse or rape or bullying, you know, the message to anyone is believe the victim. Believe the victim. The number of people who, you know, cry wolf is tiny, tiny, tiny. Who's really going to claim domestic abuse if they're not experiencing it? Hardly anybody said believe the victim until you're proven otherwise, which is highly unlikely. Wouldn't it be nice if the family court system did that too? Oh, my goodness. We'll get there. (laughs) Well, yeah, and I know you campaign at the Dash Charity campaign a lot behind the scenes. And there are some very high profile people that you're working with that are doing amazing work right now out there trying to get that message out that, you know, the number of people that cry over is small. I mean, obviously, there are people that abuse the system and, you know, that is just a reality. But. The worst thing is to be brave enough to ask for help and then not be believed, and especially in a court of law where you go expecting justice. And, well, I've seen enough cases in my time already to make me sick to my stomach that that is just not the case. Yeah. Um, Or it's so difficult to prove. And that can also be a real challenge. I had a judge tell me, well, coerced control is impossible to prove in a court of law, Sarah. So, how can it really be considered a crime or illegal when you can't prove it? Yeah. Um, so which, send them along to us for some training. <laughs> yes. I mean, training. Yes, Alison. So tell me, what training do the family courts have, that, including like lawyers, barristers, judges, social services even? What training do they have on domestic abuse? Well, it's, it's, it, unfortunately, it is a bit of a postcode lottery of who takes this seriously and who doesn't. And you've obviously experienced a lot of yourself and your clients of where this has not taken place. We're forever um, offering our training, our domestic abuse training to different groups of people we've presented to, as you have, to lawyers. Uh, I mentioned the healthy relationships workshops in schools from the age of five to the age of 18. We've trained GPs to spot the signs because quite often that's the first place people go whether it's physical or emotional they will often go to their gps so it's really important that they can spot it and yes please goodness that the court system picks this up and there's a long awaited domestic abuse bill we've been waiting for it for three and a half years and the house of lords have just approved whether it'll get through the house of commons i don't know mandatory training for the judicial system in domestic abuse awareness how to spot it what to do about it and it's it's a massive gap it's a massive gap you just got to listen to you know the court said if people are interested look up the court said Natalie she does amazing work it's a really poor system and we, we want to do something about it so we'll train everyone in domestic abuse we've got real specialism in that area and you know it is part of stopping it as opposed to picking up the pieces, which always frustrates us. Absolutely. I mean, so what you're saying is that at the moment, they don't have to have any training in domestic abuse, even though they're making daily judgments, decisions, working on behalf of clients who are going through domestic abuse, which is a huge part of the family court system in the UK. They don't actually have to have any training. No, So no, absolutely. Um, The police, I mean, we have some real supporters in the police because they see it on a daily basis, going out to domestic abuse and incidents all time and so we've got some very good partnerships with the police they have a standard part of their training their induction training they have a bit on domestic abuse but you can imagine the list of things that you're training a police officer in so we've got some great 
partners in we're in the Thames Valley, we happen to be in the Thames Valley, who say, please can you come in and do some refreshing? Can you come and oh we've got a new batch of people, can you come in and, and help us spot it? And that makes an enormous difference when you've got the police that level of awareness. Yeah, I guess it helps with the police, but if the people making the decisions in the court system don't know, then that Absolutely. is a big challenge. So yeah. yeah, let's hope this gets through because it, it it's just common sense, surely. If you're mm-hmm. doing a job, you should be properly qualified to do it. Yes. So that would be nice. Okay, yeah. well, let's, I hope you get success in that. So if someone's listening to this right now and they think, gosh, you know what? I am going through an abusive time. I think I am possibly in an abusive relationship what can they do right now to get help? I mean, obviously, if it's urgent, they must call the police. And if it's, you know, threatening them in any way in their safety, that's obviously the first thing. Uh, but after that, what happens if you just you want to find out more about that? How do you move forward? Well, there's a national domestic abuse helpline that's run by Refuge. I don't have the number to hand, but obviously you can easily Google that. I, I would say... Try and find your local specialist service. Try and find your local offering um, under Women's Aid, Google, local domestic abuse services for your area and ring their helpline. Most of my sister companies have helplines as well. And or whether you, you get onto you know, email them, however, it's easiest for people to contact us. Contact us and we can talk you through a standard risk assessment, which will tell you, are you High risk, medium risk, standard risk, and then we'll safety plan based on that level of risk. So call your local domestic abuse services. They are the experts. This podcast goes out to people around the globe. So if people are listening in other countries, there will be charities in their local area to support going through domestic abuse and help you navigate that, won't there? There, there will. It, it'll be patchy, let's be honest. I think we're probably further along than most, and that's a bit frightening. Um, but yes, I'm sort of in touch with with colleagues in, in India and um, America and Australia. And yeah, it's a bit, I know they don't have postcodes, but it's the same sort of lottery of how lucky you are in the area that you're in and indeed the country that you're in. There's a lot of help online. Like you said, um, at hashtag the, the court said or at the court said, um, I know that Rachel Watson has a great feed, Rachel Williams, the Dash charity obviously post up a lot of useful information too. I mean, you can find people who are championing the causes, right, and follow them. Do you have any other people that are worth following? Well, I'd say all of anyone who's affiliated in the UK, our two governing bodies are women's aid and safe lives and that's really important because it says we're a quality service you know we have trained people we have very strict governance systems one of the things we've seen recently so there's a pot of money coming out from the government to provide and I'm doing inverted commas here safe accommodation and the question is what safe accommodation because that's not a landlord going into the middle of a city somewhere, buying up a block of horrid apartments and saying, there you go, here's your key, there's your room. That's safe accommodation. That is not safe accommodation. We have two women murdered recently in Birmingham and both of them were in those types of accommodation where there's no security, there's no confidentiality, there's there's no governance. And so so there's a lot of campaigning, particularly here in the UK, around you don't if this should not be a profit making business you know we, we're not in this for the profit we're in this to save lives unfortunately when money rears its ugly head people are going to go after 
the money where they can. And we're seeing more and more of that cropping up. But what are the main challenges do you find that a domestic abuse charity is facing these days? I mean, I've seen domestic abuse hit the headlines a lot recently during the pandemic. So I guess that's helped in some ways. But what are the main struggles as a charity that you face? Um, I suppose if you start big picture, still some stigma. It's definitely gone up the agenda. The fact that there were some additional pots of government money coming out because they knew this was going to be a problem. But still, someone said the other day in a podcast, they said it's the elephant in the room, that it's the noisiest, smelliest, ugliest elephant ever. And some people don't want to acknowledge it. And I did a talk to a, a, another group um, a couple of weeks ago and they were so shocked that this was happening, saying, I thought we lived in a civilised society. I had no idea. So the, the stigma is still there. It's behind closed doors. It happens to a certain group of people in a socio-economic group. Well, no, it doesn't. It absolutely doesn't. Our clients are across all aspects of diversity. So that's one of the big picture things we struggle with. And then I suppose it's the you know, another thing would be you know, how it's funded. So quite often you have to go through these convoluted tendering processes. You know, it's procurement, it's buying stuff. And there's a green paper out at the moment in the UK campaigning for it to be seen differently if you're buying in people services versus if you're buying desks or chairs or (laughs) crockery or something. But at the moment, that process is quite often the same. So it's all about the money. And of course, then the big boys, am I allowed to say big boys? The big boys win. They've got, you know, 20 people writing the tender application. We've got one. They're in it for the profit. So they can promise a good promise. Say, yeah, we can do that for much less. And then guess what? They can't. So that whole tendering process, um, Big Foundation here just did some research on you know, the value of small specialist charities when there's a big thing going on. You know, we haven't got massive bureaucracy where, you know, so much of your pound you give to us will go so much further. So don't overlook the small charities because we're the ones on the ground with most frontline people doing the best quality work. So that tendering process is just a bit of a nightmare. See that when you're up against big charities that have more systems and more money to do different things and more people power, that obviously can be difficult when you're bidding for the same pots of money. Um, I mean, I can say that the team that you have, Alison, that you lead incredibly well. I mean, remarkable the work you've done with Dash and how you've how you've brought it on through times of changing and modernizing and and keeping all the team going during the pandemic when it's been really tough for them and then they're supporting people going through the darkest of times and the most heartbreaking of times and you know I know I've had the pleasure to to meet and work alongside some of your guys and you know Claire and Mirka and and all the team I mean they're all absolutely outstanding and give so much of their heart you know to these people that are reaching out and in vulnerable times we have amazing retention i mean i'm still fairly new to the job i was a trustee for what 12 years before but to have people who've been there 10 11 12 13 years working in this area and that's why i would love to be able to say it's getting better at the moment, I can't put my hand on my heart and say that. I just don't think we're breaking the cycle of it enough for a lot of the reasons we've talked about. We, we need to see 
it getting better. Again, I was on a call last week and they said, well, clearly it's not getting better because still every three days a woman is murdered. And that's been the same stats and it's probably got worse during the pandemic. So come on, what are we doing to break this cycle? Because it's madness. If you only think of it from a financial point of view, which I'm sure most of your listeners are not, but you know, the Home Office themselves estimated that back in 2016-17, domestic abuse cost England and Wales £66 billion. And you think during the pandemic, oh my goodness, what's that figure now? So it's all very well. They put out funding and we're very grateful for the funding, but it's a drop in the ocean compared to what it actually costs us as a country, um, let alone the individual costs. Where is that money being spent on what? Why is it costing so much? Well, if you just follow one case and the convoluted cases of going to court, the police time, health time, A&E time, time at schools to help support the children. They give us a bit of funding, so that would add on. Um, yeah, I can easily see how it would add up to that and, and, and more, you know, and more. So let's just put our, you know, money where our mouth is to say, shall we stop this for good? Shall we invest really properly in this and break the cycle and stop it on, on a, on a financial basis and on a, you know, personal basis? And if, you know, you think of the long-term effects on children, we know, that, that there can be long-term effects on children who've experienced it, whether it's experiencing it directly or just witnessing it, well, that's going to come back to bite us, as it always does. That will come back to bite us with people in court, people becoming perpetrators or becoming victims. We're not breaking a cycle. Yeah, maybe it needs more people to speak out. I know at the moment a lot of people feel gagged by the family system because you're not allowed to talk about what goes on in family courts. It's this shrouded in secrecy. Yeah. Ironically, in my opinion, to they say to protect the children, but actually, you know, it's meaning that a lot of things that are happening and the fact that you know maybe there isn't enough training and things is is kept hidden because if people knew what was actually going on and it was in public forums and people could watch journalists could report on it i know there's some amazing journalists like louise tickle who are trying to get in but often can't or there's too many restrictions on what they can can and can't write anyway when if they do but you know it keeps it all hidden so maybe you know if that was changed and people could actually speak out about their stories and their experiences it would help other people coming through. Completely. And as you said, it's back to the education, the training. And and I'm not saying people are say, deliberately making evil decisions, but this kind of concept of, well, contact at all costs. You know, a child deserves to have contact with both parents. Really? Not if they're abusive. But that seems to me to be the underlying premise of a lot of these, these decisions contact at all costs and it comes at a massive cost to children i don't have the stats but was it last year there were a number of children killed by perpetrators they'd had they'd been given access they'd been given sole parenting and they came to an awful end so we've got to educate 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 some, I mean, Victoria Derbyshire did that incredible show um, where she some survivors on and there was a, a woman on there, I'll never forget that interview, I just sat and cried throughout it and she said how her children had been murdered by her ex despite everybody knowing that he had a, a criminal record. 
record and that, that he'd been violent and even yeah. the social worker was scared of him. I mean, so many stories like that that uh, and Rachel Williams obviously shared her story on that show too. That so many stories you just think, how is this still happening in the UK? How? How? Yeah. You know, great that you guys are doing so much. And I know when I was out shaking for you guys on the you know, we were trying to raise money in Windsor High Street. Okay. I don't know when it was, but a couple of years ago. And a lot of people wouldn't come up to us because it was domestic mm. abuse. So if we there were kids' charities doing the same thing and they were inundated because everyone wants to go, yeah, obviously they're both, you know, very big issues. But, you know, it was much easier for people to walk over and put some money into the shaker for the children's charity than it was to come over to the domestic abuse stand and that stigma, I guess, is still there. So maybe people speaking out. I know one of the Spice Girls, was it Melanie, uh, Scary Spice, you know, wrote a Melody. book, which again, yeah. I thought was incredibly powerful. Does that make a difference? I think it does, yes. She's an ambassador for Women's Aid. Um, heard her speak on it. She, she talks very eloquently, actually, and says, you know, my goodness, like once I realised, because she denied for a long time that she was a victim. She didn't want to accept it. And she said, she said, once I realised that I was experiencing, I thought, goodness, it, even someone like me, and she didn't say that in a big-headed way, but she's got money, she's got friends, she's got supportive family. She said, if I can be a victim with all the advantages I've now got in my life, what must it be like for other people who haven't got you know, nearly as much resources? So, yes, yeah, so I keep, you know, we support children as well. So, um yeah, and, and as I said, I think I said at the beginning, our, our children's referrals have trebled since lockdown, first lockdown. So we're dealing with more children than anything. We've, we've actually hired, had to hire more, more people, which is quite a challenge in a lockdown. So I've got people working in the team I haven't even met. Um, but of course, they're on short-term contracts because, oh, you know, spend it by March the 31st. Well, this pandemic is not going away on March the 31st. And People need to know they can pay their rent and pay their mortgage. So it makes it a real challenge for us. But, yeah, children's cases trebled. Just horrendous stats to hear. But at least you are there, Dasha there, and they're helping. I mean, I know you you focus on a certain area, don't you, in the UK? What, what area does the Dash charity cover? So our, our community services are East Berkshire and South Bucks, but our refuges take women from all over the UK. And it's a sort of reciprocal process because actually if if you're in that danger you should not be in the next street or the other side of town you need to at least hopefully temporarily but get out of that area because they're very clever and they can easily track people down so our refuges are, are full of people from all over the UK and people from our area go to you know, some don't want to go too far and some say send me to Scotland you know let me just get me out of here so that's quite a nice reciprocal um, arrangement that that pro- proper refuges um women's aid um accredited refuges have and i know there's lots of ways that people can help the dash charity to help stop domestic abuse what are the different ways that people can get involved alison with the dash charity to help raise money well, oh goodness, yes, fundraising. Yes, please, it's it's tough at the moment. You know, we can't have as many events as we used to have. But, you know, there are other ways. You know, we're having virtual challenges. I think I mentioned, you know, we've been going 45 years, so we've got a 45th birthday challenge. You go onto the website, 
just the dash charity.org.uk. You'll see our 45th birthday challenge, which you can do virtually. It doesn't have to be exercise. It can be anything. But what could you do for 45 days to raise some money for us to close this, this gap that we have? But I'd, I'd add in not just the money side, though that's really important, but just talk, talk about it. I mean, talk to people about it. Don't let it be this stigma. Don't let it be behind closed doors because it's not, I always say, you might not know it, but you will know someone who is currently or has experienced domestic abuse. How uncomfortable is that for some people? But it's true. So be the eyes and ears of society. Listen out for things. Listen out for your friends and family and what might be happening with them and, and support them. No victim blaming. We'll wash our hands of you if you don't do something about it. It is not the victim's problem. It is society's problem. So come on, guys, let's all step up and call it out when we see it. That's going to be one of the ways that we, we just stop this. It's like an epidemic in its own right, frankly, or a pandemic in its own right around the world. I, mean, I guess there are some cases where it's not safe for people to stand up and call it out because sure. there is at risk from their perpetrators so things have to be done carefully and I think that can be a challenge I know for a lot of my clients are not in a position to be able to say call it out even when they know what it is and yeah. there are ways you know divorcing somebody like that which is obviously my arena is very different and I'm writing a program in conjunction with you the Dash charity right now how to divorce a difficult person and yeah. recover from a toxic relationship because you know, it is a different process because they don't think the same and, and breaking up and untying, untangling your life from theirs um, can be, well, is just a very different process. And and it can, I don't want to you know, cause panic or anything, but the, the research that Professor Jane Alton-Smith has done has shown that domestic murder, domestic homicide is the most predictable form of murder, according to her research. So she's identified eight triggers, eight different stages that that have led. If you do, you know, do any domestic homicide reviews, you can probably see there, were, there was that mother and daughter just recently um, up in Birmingham, I think. You read the background of that, I would put money on that being totally predictable, that that could have been prevented. And one of the triggers is if you leave. So it's all very well someone saying, why don't you just leave? But that can be a trigger. And, you know, Luke Hart, that was the trigger for his mother and sister being murdered. He won't mind me saying that at all. He talks very eloquently about that. He'd never, the perpetrator had never struck them, uh, but he ended up shooting them in a swimming pool car park because they had left him. And that's the ultimate, we talked about power and control. It's the ultimate loss of power and control for someone who's, who is of that nature. And so, yeah, be very careful. You're quite right, so Be very careful about, oh, why don't you just leave and, you know, just tread carefully, get advice, get professional advice, talk to you, talk to us, so we can do this safely. Luke Hart's on Twitter. He does some incredible um, posts, and he, he I've heard him speak at the Dash Charity Conference last year, and he was amazing. Yeah. I was sat next yeah. to him, actually, Alison. He's just the most incredible guy using what he'd been through, the absolute trauma that he has been through and turning in that into, I guess, almost a positive message to help other people, to help them navigate and get through. And, and I, I mean, he is a powerful, eloquent speaker. And yeah, hats off to him and, and his brother for what they and do. He, and he's a great example. They're both great examples of not really 
is this really abuse? Because they're just they've witnessed it from being tiny children, and this is what happens. And the father saying, "This is normal. This is what what happens." Um, so he's a great example of that. He talks, as you say, very eloquently. Actually, this was something that has stuck with me, and I think about a lot. Actually, even though it was over a year ago now that I heard him speak, he was saying that he was highly compliant at school. So he didn't stand out as one of the naughty kids. He knew at a young age that his education was his way out and that actually putting his head down, learning, getting good grades would be his way out of his situation. And then he hoped to be able to create a job, a situation where he could help his mom financially and get her out into her own place, which eventually he and his brother did achieve. And it was shortly after they his mother moved out, wasn't it, that she was murdered along with his sister as well. Going back to the long term effects on kids. Sorry, you know, you might think, oh, well, that, that kid's kicking off at school. So we go into schools when we're allowed and, you know, teachers will talk to us and we'll, we'll get, provide therapeutic work with children. It might be the kid kicking off and behaving really badly, whatever that looks like. Or it might be the parts of this world who are just quiet, head down, don't cause a fuss, don't cause trouble, don't pay, a, don't draw attention to yourself. So you've got to be so smart in in, in Checking this stuff. It's learn to be if you're if you're growing up with an abuser in the home, you learn to be highly compliant in a lot of cases because you don't want to get into trouble. You're walking on eggshells. So when a teacher tells you to put your head down and work, you put your head down and work because yeah. you are trained to yeah. do that. That's what you've been trained to do because otherwise you know the repercussions could be severe. Yeah. So those kids can go you know, quite easily unnoticed as the good kids that just get on with things they can't have any problems. But that really opened my eyes because I had never thought about it that way. And that was Luke Hart's talk. It was just one gem that I took from it that really hit home to me because you know, I see that with a lot of my clients too. So, I mean, this has been an amazing podcast. Alison. I know that a lot of people will, you know, have more awareness now, which is ultimately the aim to raise awareness of the domestic abuse, but also know, you know, if they do know someone or they are going through it, to, to ask for help and reach out to, to get that help, for example, from the Dash charity. And obviously, if people are listening and, and do have, you know, even £10 would make a difference to the Dash yeah. charity being such a small charity, wouldn't it? Yep, yep. Especially if it could be a monthly donation, sorry, Benji. <laughs> <laughs> it's a monthly donation of ten pounds. Yeah. Even better, guys. But anything so really would make a difference to so many. Now, one last question, as I always ask all my guests, because my podcast is called Heartbreak to Happiness, and I always say that you know you've got to understand where you're going. So, if you're aiming for happiness and working towards that, you know, you've got to know what it is for you. So, please share with us what is happiness for you. That's really made me think when you said you were going to ask it. Happiness, apart from knowing my kids are happy and my friends and family are safe and happy. Happiness for me a lot would be about thinking that we're making the world a better place. We are improving things, that each person has some say in making more people around the world safe, happy, empowered. And that's obviously a key part of DASH, which is why I'm so proud to be a part of it. It doesn't always make you very popular. Um, <laughs> it's not always that much fun. But, uh, yeah, let's make the world a better place. We can do this. If you want to join in making the world a better place, how do people get involved with Dash, whether that's volunteering or donating or just finding out more? Yeah, go to our website, have a look, sign up to uh, our newsletter, 
uh, fundraise, join the 45th birthday challenge, anything you can do, and, and talk about us. Please talk about us. And if there are other ways, when you say, you know, how, how are you raising awareness? I think, well, doing things like a recording with Sarah helps raise awareness and doing doing networking and talking at, at clubs. Um, if there's anyone listening who's um, who wants us to get on a, a call to educate anyone uh, who they think would benefit, I'm sure you and I would be perfectly happy to do that. Absolutely, absolutely. Always happy to, to give a talk or a speech about domestic abuse and, and raise awareness. So thank you, Alison. So the website is the Dash Charity org.uk yep. and people can go there to find out more so thanks so much for joining me and thank being you my for guest. asking me yeah thank you thanks Sarah. that's it for today's episode be sure to head on over to the dash charity.org.uk to find out more about the charity and the work that Alison is doing and i look forward to you joining me on our next episode That's it for today's episode of Heartbreak to Happiness. Head on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. One lucky listener every single week that posts a review in iTunes will win the chance in the grand prize drawing to win a private VIP day, including exclusive one-on-one coaching with Sarah Davison herself. Be sure to head on over to heartbreaktohappinesspodcast.com and pick up a free copy of Sarah's gift. Then join us on the next episode.